Thank, thank you, Caroline. That was fascinating. Um, now we're going to a straight to our next talk, which is uh, Susan Owens on continuing this theme, the appearance of ghosts. Please welcome Susan Owens. Thank you. Because, um, good morning, everyone. Because um, Mark and Caroline are both um, quite tall and I'm not, I'm going to try to just stand to one side slightly in the hope that you can see me and I can see you as well. So I really, um, I'm absolutely fascinated by this idea, which I think we've got the sense of already, that ghosts change over time, that the way in which we think about them, um, the way they behave and the way they look, um, that those things change as the scope of our imaginations changes. I was really thinking about um, the sorts of ghosts we imagine these days, and we quite often, especially when we think about uh, ghosts in historic houses, we often think about a ghost sort of drifting towards a door, perhaps, and looking quite ethereal. And often you hear that when the ghost reaches the door, it will just sort of disappear or seem to just float through the door, and that will be it. It certainly won't open the door and walk through it. But one of um, Caroline's uh, revenants is more likely to break the door down and to beat you to death with the broken planks. <laughs> These revenants were really very violent ghosts, but they, it's quite rare to find a violent ghost these days. So um, I've just um, published a book called The Ghost to Cultural History, and it's really about this issue of, of what happens as our imaginations change, how we see ghosts differently, and especially how artists and writers um, think about ghosts and, uh, and draw them and write them. But I want to begin as well, I mean, we just have to ignore Robert Burton there for a moment, but I want to begin um, with medieval ghosts as well, and to actually go back to uh, the Byland Abbey stories that both Mark and Caroline have mentioned already. Um, there was a monk at Byland Abbey in around uh, about 1400 who wrote down stories that local people told him. And these were stories of uncanny things that had happened to them, apparitions they'd seen. In one of them, um, there was a tailor called Snowball who was riding home um, over the, the Yorkshire Moors one evening when suddenly he was attacked by uh, a black crow. And he knew it wasn't an ordinary crow, just a violent one, um, because it was sparks were flying out from its sides. And it kept on dive-bombing him until he couldn't really ignore it any longer. He had to get off his horse and confront this crow that kept coming at him. And then, at a certain point, it changed. It turned into a black dog, a chained black dog. And the dog then spoke to him and said, I'm a soul suffering in purgatory. Please will you say prayers for my soul and you'll lessen my suffering. I'll be able to get to heaven more quickly. There was another story written down by the monk of a, a farmer who was walking his fields with his um, head plowman when suddenly he was attacked by a spirit, the spirit of a clergyman. 
And the clergyman uh, fought with him. He grabbed him and uh, shook him. And so the farmer had to wrestle with this spirit and get him onto the ground. I think the, the ploughman had, uh, had um, run away at this point. And, um, and then what the spirit said was, I'm uh, a soul suffering in purgatory. Please would you say prayers for my soul so I can get to heaven more quickly. So the same story seems to happen over and over again. Once the idea of purgatory becomes embedded in people's imaginations, then there's this idea, because it's not really, it's not um, the final place a soul might go to. It's somewhere a soul just might be able to slip back from in order to come back to earth and ask for help. So, there's this idea that, um, that it's quite logical that you might see an apparition or, or interpret a, a spirit in this way. But when the English Reformation came, it had very serious implications for ghosts because once the idea of purgatory was no longer generally accepted, then ghosts no longer had, um, had any excuse for appearing. Souls had gone either to heaven or to hell, and you couldn't really, why would you want to come back from heaven? And you certainly wouldn't be allowed to come back from hell. So there was this sort of strange idea that suddenly, and quite a lot of reformers uh, started to say, well, ghosts have vanished. This new Protestant religion has tidied ghosts away. And one, um, one, one chap said, souls departed, do not come again and play Bo Peep with us. But what was very inconvenient for the reformers is that ghosts kept on appearing, or at least people thought they, they saw ghosts. Um, they didn't go away at all. But because they didn't really uh, exist officially after the Reformation, they had to be invented. So there were lots of ideas at the time about what ghosts might be. And this idea came forward um, uh, in the late 16th century that well, ghosts, um, apparitions must be spirits who were appearing, um, but these spirits weren't um, anything to do with human souls. They were just a separate category of supernatural being that coexisted with us. And if they happened to look like a person you knew who had died, well, it was probably the devil playing a trick on you. It all sounds a bit strange, but this is what you find in the literature of the time. Um, and now we get to Robert Burton, his Anatomy of Melancholy, because in 1621, when that was published, he um, devotes a whole uh, section to the subject of ghosts and apparitions. Um, it's, it's his digression on the nature of spirits, bad angels or devils, and how they cause melancholy. Now, Burton had no doubts that there were such things as apparitions and spirits, but he thought it was a foolish opinion that they were the souls of departed men and women. In a way, you get this sort of double uh, idea going on at the time that educated people thought that there were these things, spirits. Most ordinary people just probably assumed that they were human souls that were appearing. But... Burton was still quite sympathetic to the idea um, of, of some poor person who'd seen an apparition, and he said that devils many times appear to men. 
Sorry, I'm having difficulty changing the slide. There we go. He said that devils many times appear to men and affright them out of their wits, sometimes walking at noonday, sometimes at nights, counterfeiting dead men's ghosts. And he, he thought, this is rather interesting, he thought that those that they targeted particularly were melancholy persons. So it was this odd idea at the time that it was almost a psychological matter, that you might actually, by your own rather gloomy frame of mind, be bringing it upon yourself, this idea of seeing, seeing ghosts. And of course, at the time, um, one of the... Um, Okay, so on the subject of, of melancholy persons, I wanted to um, uh, just mention um, Hamlet, which Shakespeare wrote about 20 years before The Anatomy of Melancholy was published. Because, of course, um, the, what Shakespeare does with Hamlet is he brings in lots of different ideas that people would have had at the time about what ghosts were. Um, the subject, the question was, was old Hamlet um, a devil counterfeiting a dead man's ghost, which is what Hamlet and his friend Horatio, of course, they're both university educated, think they are. Um, when Hamlet first meets the ghost, he says, be thou a spirit of health or a goblin damned. So really what he's saying is that the question you're supposed to ask a ghost at that time, which is, are you a good spirit or a bad spirit? Um, <coughs> The sentries who are on guard simply think that it's the soul of old Hamlet, Hamlet's father, because, as I said, they, most ordinary people would simply have had that view of ghosts. So um, at one point they, they say, Horatio says, "'Tis but our fantasy." So Horatio is basically saying, you're just inventing them, but they just assume it's Hamlet's father. But of course, the ghost himself says, "'I am thy father's spirit.'" But then again, if he was, an evil spirit, surely he probably would say that, try to lure Hamlet over a cliff or something. And this idea continues, back to this slide, um, towards the end of the 17th century. Um, I rather love this illustration. You, you, you get um, um, very serious scholars writing books about spirits and, and apparitions. This one is by a chap called Joseph Glanville, who's a clergyman and a fellow of the Royal Society. He writes a whole book about ghosts and saying, well, they really, spirits really exist. You have to believe in them. One of the famous stories he writes about is the drummer of Tedworth, which is uh, what we would now call a poltergeist story of a, a drumming ghost that disturbs a house for months on end. But what's rather lovely is that, and remember, this book is, uh, is really published for educated people. The illustrator decides to uh, draw the ghost as a little devil. He's got cloven hooves, he's got a little pointed tail and wings, because, of course, that was how ghosts were perceived at the time. It was a little demon dancing on top of the house. But the 18th century was a real time of transition in the way that ghosts were viewed. Um, in popular culture, not, not this sort of image, but in popular culture, there was a very specific ghost look. Um, this is um, um, an image, rather beautiful image, from a, a ballad, a ballad published in the very late 17th century. And it gives you a very vivid idea of uh, 
what ghosts were thought to look like at the time. Um, ballads were for, um, they were for ordinary people. You could buy one for about a penny, a, a ballad sheet uh, to, to sing. Um, they were almost always illustrated. Ballads were often on uh, rather sensational subjects of love and death, passion and murder. So, of course, they often had ghosts in them. And this is how um, ghosts were almost always portrayed. Um, they, had, they were wearing shrouds tied up at the tops of their heads, but loose at the feet, because, of course, they would normally have been tied at the bottom of the feet, but the ghost had to walk. So in this instance, you see the ghost's little bare feet at the bottom, and they almost always carry lighted tapers as well. But what's interesting here is that the idea of the, uh, the devil, the devil apparition obviously continues because you see this uh, a, a devil carrying away this hapless woman on the left of the image. So there's a lot of confusion about what ghosts look like. But I want to stick with the um, figure in the shroud for a moment because I think as well as... Um, in, in a way, it's based on um, the idea of the ghost wearing a shroud. is based on what corpses were dressed in when they were buried. But I think it's also based on funerary monuments as well. So here on top right, there's a very strange, rather macabre uh, tomb monument from Fenny Bentley in, in Derbyshire. Thomas Beresford and his wife, dressed in their shrouds, tied up at head and foot. A strange image. And just below that, uh, another um, memorial, um, uh, engraved memorial brasses, again showing this couple in their shrouds ready to meet their makers. So I think that ghosts, um, as they were depicted in, in ballads, in this kind of popular art, were also based on this kind of funerary imagery. But over time, as corpses were prepared for burial, they stopped being dressed in shrouds, probably round about 1700, and started being dressed in ordinary shirts instead. So garments more like ordinary men's shirts or women's shifts. And you can see in this uh, ghost here, who's wearing a very, obviously, Thomas Rowlandson has found other ways of making him frightening, but he's wearing a very uh, ordinary little shirt with a drawstring at the neck. So it's actually rather unremarkable as costumes go, so other ways had to be found uh, of representing ghosts in visual art. Now, one solution was the cloud. Ghosts began to be represented in standing in bubbling clouds or in other ways represented by clouds. And I think this has its roots in religious paintings. This is the... Um, famous painting by Titian, um, now in the Ferrari in Venice, The Assumption of the Virgin. For a long time in religious painting, clouds had been seen as like fleecy ferries that tended to transport supernatural figures from the earth to heaven. So they sort of shuttled in between the two. So I think clouds and the supernatural have quite a long uh, relationship with each other. But I think more generally, clouds and ghosts have things in common with each other. They're both quite nebulous and indistinct, and they're neither entirely up nor entirely down. So you know, they have these things in common. So they begin to be used um, as a, a way of, of showing you in an image that this is a supernatural figure, not an ordinary figure. 
This is an illustration to a story by Daniel Defoe, published in 1727, um, really under the uh, purporting to write a very serious book about ghosts and apparitions. Uh, Defoe actually uh, writes this rather wonderful book of, of ghost stories. And this is an illustration to one of them about a, a ghostly vicar. And you see him in the background, and, and he's got this great plume of cloud coming out of his cassock. So, you know there's something rather strange about this, this figure. This is um, the ghost of Samuel Johnson. <laughs> he looks like a rocket about to achieve liftoff here. I think this is my favorite ghost of all. This is William Augustus, the Duke of Cumberland, appearing to admonish his great nephew, the Prince of Wales, later George IV. I have to say, naked ghosts are extremely rare in art, but I really wanted to show you this one. But also, the, the idea of um, ghosts and a sort of steam or smoke actually uh, tended to filter into how people then thought they, they saw ghosts. Uh, there's a, a very interesting, I'm sure you, you all know it, a, a book that was published in 1848, by a writer called Catherine Crow, uh, called The Night Side of Nature. It's a whole compendium of supernatural experiences. And she has a whole category of ghost uh, that she describes as vapory, cloudy, and transparent. And she says, I have met with several instances of cloudy figures being seen as if the spirit had built himself up a form of atmospheric air. But ghosts also needed new outfits as well. Well, certainly, I think William Augustus certainly needs any kind of outfit, really. Um, I think they needed something more dramatic to wear. And so the idea of ghosts wearing white sheets was, was born. Now, I began to look into this uh, as I was researching my, my book. And I thought, well, when did ghosts start to wear white sheets? Initially, I thought, well, it probably has something to do with the shroud, the shrouded ghost, of course. But in a way, the way in which ghosts in shrouds are always represented is quite neat. They're always with the top knot and just the shroud hanging uh, loosely to the feet. But it's not quite like this sort of the, the big sheet that um, ghosts begin to wear. And I began to find that it was really in the late 18th century when artists begin to uh, illustrate scenes from classical drama. And uh, these are two illustrations of uh, Aeschylus plays. At the top, it's George Rumney uh, drawing the ghost of Darius the Great. And you see, he's actually got a, a cloud for good measure, and he's wearing this vaguely classical kind of drapery, which is holding up over his head to create this rather strange effect. And underneath, I hope you can see it, it's quite a delicate outline illustration, but it's the ghost of Clytemnestra, again wearing this classical drapery that she is holding up over her head, creating this rather spooky silhouette. Rather, it gives the ghost a lot of authority, this kind of um, thing, this um, kind of garment. Um, um, it wasn't long before the idea of the white sheet sort of got 
taken up um, by, uh, by real ghosts. Uh, this is um, a case in point. It's the famous Hammersmith ghost of 1804. Hammersmith was terrorized uh, for uh, over a month by the repeated appearance of a figure uh, wearing, draped in a white sheet that would run around and, and frighten people. It actually frightened one poor woman to death when she saw it. And, uh, a workman at the time, uh, um, uh, some workmen tended to, to wear white overalls. This poor workman was, was shot at because someone assumed he must be the Hammersmith ghost. Well, it was exposed as a hoax, but not before this uh, image purporting to represent the spectre had been uh, circulated uh, in print form. So it just helped to reinforce the idea that ghosts wore white sheets. That's what they looked like. And, of course, the, the white sheet was taken up very enthusiastically by spirit photographers in the second half of the 19th century. Um, this is a rather nice uh, early example by one of the first uh, English practitioners called Frederick Hudson. And, of course, the white sheet had the great advantage that it allowed the face to be veiled, the face of the spirit to be veiled, which was a bit of a contentious issue when the spirit was supposed to be a close family member, and how on earth did you make that one up? And it continued in uh, M.R. James's great story, O Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad, the ghost is uh, apparently, at least in its physical form, it's nothing but a white sheet, uh, which he describes as having a, an intensely horrible face of crumpled linen. Uh, this on the left is an illustration by James McBride, who was one of the uh, undergraduates who was lucky enough to sit in M.R. James's rooms with him when he told his, his ghost stories to his circle of friends, and he made a series of illustrations for his stories. And of course, on the right, it's um, Michael Horden in Jonathan Miller's um, film um, of, of 1968 being menaced by a bit of tattered drapery. <laughs> well, I think that we might be surprised these days if we were to meet uh, a ghost wearing a, a white sheet in Hammersmith or anywhere else, really. But the idea of the see-through ghost seems to have in endured. Um, of course, it's famously there in A Christmas Carol uh, by Charles Dickens, in which Jacob Marley's ghost um, is, uh, well, he's described as, his body is described as transparent, so that Scrooge, observing him and looking through his waistcoat, could see the two buttons on his coat behind. Scrooge had often heard it said that Marley had no bowels, but he'd never believed it until now. <laughs> But when exactly did ghosts go see-through? Well, probably not quite as early as you think because it seems to be such a natural property of ghosts that they'd be see-through because they're neither quite there or, 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 or here. It's, they're, they're somewhere in between. But actually, I think it only really emerged as an idea in the late 18th century where there was such a lot of chopping and changing going on in how ghosts looked. And I think it's to do with a form of entertainment uh, known as the Phantasmagoria show, uh, which uh, first came to England in 
certainly the very late 18th century or maybe around 1800. Now, the Phantasmagoria show, it would be in a room rather like this, but with the windows blacked out completely. Um, once all the audience were in, um, the organisers would start up something like a thunder machine, which would start to make a lot of crashing and uh, sort of generate some uh, drama. But of course, under cover of the sound, what the organisers would do would be to let down a screen from the ceiling, which would be made out of a kind of gauzy material. And onto that screen would be back projected uh, lantern slides, glass slides painted with images of ghosts and uh, uh, devils and witches. And these could be made to, to look as though they were rushing at the audience by the projector being wheeled forward. And I think you get a, a certain sense of what's uh, a bit of artistic license, but th this is the general effect, that these uh, spirits and witches would appear to be hovering in midair, but most of all, they'd appear to be transparent. Light would come through them. Sometimes they'd even be projected onto puffs of smoke, so you can imagine how effective that would be as the smoke sort of drifted and changed shape. So again, it's the sort of thing that it, it, it caught on as an idea. Um, and then, of course, when photography was invented in the late 1830s, it was almost uncannily predisposed to the creation of ghostly images with the idea that you could um, walk into a frame uh, and be there for a very short time and then walk out again and you would appear as a transparent image. This is a very early spirit photograph by William Mumler, uh, a Bostonian uh, photographer who first worked out that you could make images of things that look very much like ghosts. Um, so it was, it sort of, but I love this idea that the camera might just with its mechanical eye be able to capture what the human eye can't see. It's something that uh, it seems, um, it's easy to laugh at it now. But I think at the time, um, the camera must have seemed a, quite an uncanny piece of equipment, and the, in a way there was no reason why, why shouldn't it be able to see things that the human eye couldn't see. But it wasn't long before these uh, photography began to be used for these wonderful comic images. This would be seen in uh, three dimensions through a stereoscope, and the ghost would almost always be dressed in a, a white sheet and be transparent. There was end, an endless appetite for these images in the late 19th century. And it's a very long-lasting idea. This is the famous photograph of the, the brown lady of Raynham Hall in North Norfolk, which was caught on camera in 1936 by Country Life magazine. Um, <laughs> although it, it's still produced now as, a, as an image of a real ghost photograph, but given that it was always supposed to be uh, published in their Christmas issue. I've always rather wondered about whether, because ghosts and Christmas have a very long association, I've always rather wondered about that one. Well, I just want to finish really by just thinking um, very briefly about the uh, ideas about ghosts now. I think that uh, the idea of uh, ghosts and our, our heritage tends to be, it's very, it's a very strong, there's a very strong link. It'd be quite difficult to find a national trust house, for instance, that uh, isn't haunted by at least one ghost. There are lots of, lots of ghosts around. We seem to like these days the, 
the presence of ghosts, almost as though they personify our history, our shared past. I think that we, quite a lot of us would like like to see a ghost, perhaps not in our own homes, but somewhere else, in some historic location. And certainly for the National Trust itself, the presence of a ghost, uh, far from being off-putting, is now gold dust, because you know, it's, it's a, it, people want to go to see them. They want to go to haunted houses. Um, a book was published uh, by, by the Trust uh, not so long ago uh, by uh, an author called Sean Evans, and what's very interesting, I mean, she, she goes through uh, all different houses with stories, telling stories about the ghosts that taunt them. But what's interesting is the, the way it's illustrated. It's illustrated with photographs of uh, various locations. I spoke to Sean about the book, and she said that they got uh, prints of uh, each of the images they wanted to use, and they re-photographed each one of them to create a slightly misty, slightly grainy effect that, of course, would make the images look consistent, but kind of give them a, a bit of a misty quality as well. They made them all in black and white. But what's rather nice is that none of them, of course, show ghosts. They just show... They almost invite us to look into the images and see if we can find the ghosts ourselves. And I think this is quite indicative of the way in which we think about ghosts these days. I mean, we, we're just invited to imagine ghosts sitting at that pub table. And I think because we've become so visually sophisticated these days, we're bombarded with images all the time. It's almost as though ghosts have disappeared. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Susan.